Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Tragically, there are far too many in today's world who have taken very literally that admonition long ago by Moses to the people of God. They are standing still and waiting to see the salvation of the Lord, believing that we need do nothing in order to effect our salvation, but just simply let the Lord do it all. What we're going to see this morning from this verse, Exodus 14, 13, and surrounding verses is that nothing could be farther from the truth than that we should stand still literally and let the Lord save us without any effort on our part. Because what we're going to study this morning, and the Lord willing, next Sunday morning in the second part of our lesson from chapter 15 of Exodus is the greatest deliverance prior to the deliverance that was effected by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at Calvary in delivering mankind from sin. It is the crossing of the Red Sea, of course, which is under discussion in Exodus chapter 14. Following the plagues that God had visited upon the Egyptians and ultimately bringing about the release of God's people and their freedom from Egyptian bondage, they had made their way out of Egypt. And in this great book of Exodus in which we find these events, the theme is deliverance. And as we said, it's typical of the greatest deliverance prior to Calvary. The climax of this typical deliverance is seen in the chapters that we're going to look at, the Lord willing, today, and then in one other lesson next Lord's Day. And in these chapters, God demonstrates His power, God fulfills His promise, and God reveals His purpose in leading His people through the waters of the Red Sea. And even though this is a, an account that took place long, long ago, there are important lessons for us today in the deliverance that is depicted here. And so this morning I'd like for us to open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 14 and look at some very, very important points surrounding this deliverance and the pertinent lessons that we may glean from it from us, for us today. As we begin chapter 14 and look at the first four verses, we see desperation and dependence. That's how I would describe these verses as desperation and dependence. The people of God had left Egypt. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What's the point of where God instructed these people, his people, to camp? They appeared to be hopelessly trapped. And yet God had a purpose for bringing them to this very particular geographical Location, because it would appear ultimately to Pharaoh and his army as they came that indeed they were hopelessly trapped and that there was 
no escape. And that's what God knew was going to happen because verse 3, he says, Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. Look what they've done. They've put themselves in a trap. The wilderness has closed them in. Why did God do that? The Egyptians were to know that God did it. That God brought about this deliverance. That it had nothing to do with the ability of God's people to bring about their own deliverance and making their own escape. They were hopelessly trapped. That's what it appeared to be. And yet God would deliver them and the Egyptians would know it. But also, most importantly, the Israelites would hopefully fully understand their dependence upon God for deliverance. And that's an important lesson for us today. We must recognize our dependence upon God. And oh, how tragic it is that mankind in general does not acknowledge that dependence and does not recognize that dependence. Mankind as a whole does not see the seriousness of sin and that the only way out of that sin is not by his own effort, by man's own effort, although there's a part man must play, but that he is dependent upon God for salvation, and that without the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that brought about a far greater deliverance than we're studying here in these chapters, there would be no hope of salvation at all. But there is a principle that is set forth here. As God brought his people to this particular location, that principle is that we must never lose sight of the fact that God, God is our deliverer, and that we are dependent upon him, that he is our refuge and strength, that he is a very present help in trouble. As he was present with his people here, he is present with his people here today and will always be with his people, will always be there if we will seek him. And so desperation, yes, and dependence would characterize the first four verses. But then, then in verses 5 through 9, we see a determination the determination of Pharaoh to pursue. It was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him, and he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahirath before Baal-Zephon. God hardened Pharaoh's heart as he did time and time again. But sometimes, as we've noted, the attribution for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is given to Pharaoh himself. How is it the case that Pharaoh hardened his heart and that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? There's no, there's no disharmony there at all, no contradiction at all. God made demands through Moses and Aaron upon Pharaoh who, because of the hardness of his heart, because of the kind of person he was, he hardened his heart against those demands. God made the demands, therefore it can be said God hardened his heart, but he did so by making those demands. And Pharaoh would not relent. Oh yes, he would for a time after certain plagues, he got the message and he would say, take away the plague and I'll let you go. And then he would change his mind. Take away the plague and I'll let you go. And then he would change his mind. And even now, after letting the people go, he has changed his mind and here he comes 
with all of his army after saying, why have we done this, that we've let Israel go from serving us? What a character he was. And so Pharaoh also illustrates something that's very, very pertinent to us today. He illustrates the hardening effect of the gospel on an unreceptive heart. Remember that wayside soil in the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, whichever you prefer to call it? Most of the seed fell on wayside soil, hardened soil, which it could not penetrate. And the truth of the matter is that the devil will do everything he can to keep that soil as hard and continue to harden it even more. And the more we reject the gospel today, the easier it becomes to reject the gospel, and the more hardened people become against the truth. Pharaoh's heart should have been melted, if you will, but rather it was hardened. Depending upon the heart today, the sunlight of the gospel will either harden that soil or it will penetrate that soil. Pharaoh illustrates the hardening of the heart and also illustrates a very, very important and eternal principle set forth for us in Scripture time and time again, and that is this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's exactly what we're witnessing in this account in Exodus 14. The pride of Pharaoh going before his ultimate destruction and that of his people and a fall, a fall that would be mentioned in Scripture over a hundred times or about a hundred times because of the, the magnitude of it. Determination to pursue would lead to his destruction. But in verses 10 through 12, as we go further, we also see the disbelief now of God's people. We've seen the desperation on their part, the need for their dependence. We've seen Pharaoh's determination to pursue them. But now we're going to see disbelief on the part of the people. Look at verses 10 through 12. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and beheld the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Disbelief. They believe that they were truly trapped. They see the army of the Egyptians coming to them and they are murmuring and complaining and saying it would be far better if we had just been simply left in Egypt. The psalmist has something to say about the attitude that was expressed here. In Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist comments on this particular incident in history and says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. The next verse says, Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. 
God could have destroyed them as a result of their disbelief at this place because as the psalmist comments on it, they didn't understand or appreciate the wonders that he had already shown. You think about what they had seen in the ten plagues that had been visited upon Egypt prior to their being let go. Think about the fact that the firstborn of every family in Egypt had died in that final tenth plague and yet the people of God had been spared as they followed the instructions of God to strike the doorpost and lentil with the blood of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. They were spared. They saw things hit the Egyptians that never touched them in the land of Goshen because God made a difference between them and between the Egyptians, between them and the Egyptians. And yet now, because they seemingly are geographically trapped, they've certainly forgotten all of that, suddenly forgotten it. And that's what the psalmist says. They did not understand the wonders and did not appreciate the mercies that God had shown them. We must make sure that as God's people today, we are not among them. We are not among them. They were without excuse for their disbelief. I don't care how many chariots they saw coming toward them and how many Egyptian soldiers they saw, they should have realized God's going to take care of this. And yet, they did not. They did not. What about us today, living in the sunlight age, the gospel age? Do we understand his wonders? his wonders of old, and do we understand fully and appreciate to the greatest extent the ultimate deliverance and sacrifice that has been made for us through Calvary? A far greater deliverance than this deliverance about which we're studying, as grand as it was, as tremendous as it was. I can only imagine watching the waters of the Red Sea part as they were able to do. What about us? We need to make absolutely sure that disbelief never characterizes us, but that regardless of external circumstances and regardless of how trapped, if you will, we may seem at times by the circumstances of life, that God is still in control and that if we will maintain our dependence upon him and our faith in him, that God will deliver. God will deliver. But then in verses 13 and 14, we have the demonstration of Moses' courage. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Again, we see the courage of Moses, a contrast to the cowardice of the Israelites. You see, Moses had understood God's wonders in Egypt. Moses had gotten the message. He had gotten the message through the manifestation of God's power. You remember when God first called him at the burning bush there in chapter 3? Moses made excuse after excuse to the point that God became angry with him. Because he kept saying, I'm not the man. I'm not the one for this task. I'm slow of speech, etc., etc. Made excuse after excuse. But ultimately, he went and he did demonstrate some faith when he reached down and grabbed that snake by the tail, didn't he? And it turned to the rod. He demonstrated some courage there too, on that occasion even. But his courage has grown. 
as his journey with God has continued, as should our courage grow and our faith grow as our journey with God continues. And so the demonstration of Moses' courage is seen here. And now we're going to see directions for deliverance in verses 15 through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. And we stop right there. And what's going on here? Is the Lord rebuking Moses? I don't think so. I believe what's understood here would be something that's not explicitly stated, that obviously Moses was praying to God at this point in time. He was seeking direction, but God in effect is saying, now you've prayed enough, now we're going to take action here, so no longer pray, but go forward. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. How so? But lift up your rod. Here are the specific instructions, verse 16. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So here are God's directions now for deliverance. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, in the sense, in other words, hold your peace, but don't literally stand still because now the Israelites, based on these directions, are going to have to move. They can't literally stand still and be saved. They're going to have to move to go forward by faith. And as we said earlier, tragically, some today are literally trying to stand still to see the salvation of the Lord because they view faith as being mental agreement, mental assent, nothing more, not an obedient faith, and they deny the essentiality of faith that obeys, being the faith that saves. And it is true that the Lord delivers by His grace. That's the ground of His salvation, as it was the ground of the salvation here from the Egyptian army. But it was not the totality of their salvation. They couldn't stay where they were and depend upon the grace of God to bring about their salvation. They had to have faith. What kind of faith? The faith that would cause them to go through on dry ground Waters that are on either side of them, which could have been an awesome and would have been truly an awesome sight and a very intimidating sight. They had to go forward. A forward-moving faith. And it was true of them then and it's true of us now. The principles have not changed by which God saves man. We've talked about it many times. Grace through faith. But what kind of faith? Obedient faith. And we've talked about Noah in Genesis 6-8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor. But verse 9 says Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And Noah what? Walked with God. The people of God here are going to have to walk with him through the waters of the Red Sea in order to demonstrate their faith and to appropriate or accept the favor and the grace that God was bestowing upon them by parting those waters in the first place. That should not be difficult for us to understand. That has never changed. We're not going to be asked to go through parted waters. But we are asked to go through the waters of baptism. And many balk and 
don't have enough faith to span a four-foot baptistry in today's world, tragically. Yet God has said, unless you span that four-foot baptistry, there will be no deliverance. Why? Because God said so. And because in that water, God has chosen to apply the blood of His only begotten Son that was shed on Calvary. That's where it's applied. That's what the Bible makes abundantly clear. And unless I have enough forward-moving faith to span a four-foot baptistry, then I will be without hope. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes reference to the very events we're studying here and talks about the people of God being baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. There was a type of baptism that they went through right here. What was it? There were clouds overhead and water on each side, and they went through the middle, and thus they were surrounded, engulfed, if you were, by water, baptized unto Moses. And on the other side of that burial, so to speak, whose authority were they to submit to? Moses as the mediator between them and God. Whose authority are we submitting to when our faith leads us to repent and confess and be baptized for the remission of sins. We're being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Into the name of, which means what? The authority of. We're being baptized into the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As they were baptized into the authority of Moses, as it were. A typical event that looks toward our baptism today. They had to follow, by faith, the directions that were given. And in faith's great hall of fame, as it's often called, Hebrews chapter 11, they are mentioned, verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith they what? Passed through. They had to pass through by faith. And we have to pass through, as it were, by faith. And when we do those things, then the Lord himself adds us to his church, his kingdom, and brings about our salvation. But now, in verses 19 through 29, we have destruction and deliverance. Destruction on the one hand and deliverance on the other. Look at verses 19 and 20, first of all. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So here... God used the pillar of the cloud, the pillar of the cloud to illuminate the Israelites and to intimidate the Egyptians. And it kept them from each other. Then you look over at verses 24 and 25 of this section. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and he troubled the army of the Egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. 
The Lord fights for them. Let us flee. But it's too late. It's too late. Psalm 77, verses 16 through 18. There the the, uh, commentary from the psalmist is this. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. It's a reference to this very event and what took place in the destruction of the Egyptians. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the fear? The absolute horror that engulfed these Egyptians as those chariot wheels began to come off and as they realized they were the ones who were trapped. And yet Pharaoh and the Egyptians had their opportunities. Time and time again they had opportunity to heed the admonition that was given by Moses and Aaron to see the power of God time and time again, and yet they rejected those opportunities. Think about now. How many are rejecting opportunities now? How many have rejected opportunities since time began and will reject the opportunities until time is no more? And yet that time will come when God will bring judgment upon mankind, as he did here upon the Egyptians. Acts 17, 30 and 31, that day is coming in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all in that he raised him from the dead. That judgment for all is coming when opportunity will be no more. And do you think that in the minds of any of these soldiers and in Pharaoh's own mind, do you think as they realized the waters were coming down upon them, and that they were doomed, that they thought back to any of those plagues and thought, if we had only, if we had only recognized fully the power of God and responded properly to it, we wouldn't be in this mess that we are in now. But then in the final two verses of this chapter, we see the dedication of God's people. In verses 30 and 31. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. You can picture the bodies washing up as the waters had come back together. And they are on the other side. And now the bodies, they're just watching the bodies wash up to the shore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. Now here's the reaction. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant, Moses. The miracle had served its purpose. As we mentioned earlier, this event is mentioned about a hundred times in Scripture. And the recorded miracles that are mentioned in Scripture are designed to produce the desired response in us today. We don't need to see the miracles. We don't need to see the, the waters of any sea, red or otherwise, parting to know that they did part and to believe that God did it and to believe everything we read about in Old Testament and New for that matter. 
And remember John wrote many other signs, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that, in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. We need to believe what we read here because it is reliable. The knowledge of salvation is right here for us today. And when we, when we understand fully and believe wholeheartedly what the New Testament tells us to do to become Christians, believe in Jesus as the Christ, repent of our sins, confess him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins where his blood cleanses us from sin, it is then that we have peace that surpasses understanding and a joy that is unspeakable. And next Lord's Day morning, the Lord willing, we'll see that joy that was expressed in the song of Moses that was sung on the other side of the Red Sea. That song of deliverance, and draw some lessons from that as we see just how overjoyed the people were and how grateful they were as delight follows deliverance in chapter 15. But today, delight can follow your deliverance if you're willing to be delivered. And there is but one way to be delivered, and that is through obedience to the gospel, as we have already outlined it in this lesson. Belief with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you must have that kind of belief. But it must be the kind that, as was the case with these Israelites, it must move you forward. It must move you forward to fully repent of your sins, change your mind about sin and where you are, to confess that Jesus is the Christ, and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But repentance is absolutely essential because the Lord said, repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. And then baptism follows that sweet confession that one is willing to make where faith demonstrates itself in spanning a four-foot baptistry, if you will, as the faith of God's people of old had to demonstrate itself in, in going into waters that were said to be some 80 feet deep that parted on either side of them. That took some faith. And when we've done those things, that is, believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized, can we rise from the watery grave of baptism and say, look what I've just done. I've saved myself. Why, of course not. What is submission to a barrel in water? But just that, a submission to what God says to do. It's not earning salvation. It's a work of obedient faith that God requires. And we can't brag about that or boast about it any more than the Israelites could on the other side of the Red Sea. Could they stand on that shore and say, look what we just did. How'd you like that? How'd you like that parting of the waters we just accomplished? They had nothing to do with that. But they did have to respond by faith to what God had done, and so must we. And if you haven't, we plead with you to do so. And if you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed in a public way, do that now. We'll pray with you and for you to the God who loves you. As we stand to sing, will you come?